Today on Blue 58, on the doorstep of training camp, we find ourselves in a familiar situation, wondering what's going on with David Bakhtiari. With the star tackle now on the physically unable to perform list, the David Bakhtiari doomsday scenario is now on the board. Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of ThePowerSweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. And here we are again, talking about David Bakhtiari. The Packers have placed him on the physically unable to perform list, according to reports. He's had another setback in his rehab of that ACL injury that happened in December 2020. The very last day of 2020, in fact. He can't practice now until he's cleared, and who knows when that's going to be. I have to make a correction on what we've described previously as far as the physically unable to perform list. You only have to be on it for four weeks now into the regular season, now not six. That is a difference from previous years. You can start practicing after those four weeks, at which point the window opens during with the team during which you can practice. After that window, uh, the team either has to put you on the 53 or put you on injured reserve. That is a question for a different day. If it gets that far, we've got a whole host of other issues. Initial reaction to this news, though, it's bad. It's really bad. But if you're trying to spin it, is there anything you can do? Is there any way to say, well, it might not be quite as bad as everybody's saying? I really can't think of a scenario. The most positive possible reading is that the Packers want to just get a look at him post-rehab, post-whatever this setback was, before he starts practicing for real. And that even, I think, feels like a stretch. I've probably been more positive than most about the Bakhtiari recovery process all of last season. I was trying to to be as positive as we could, just saying, you know, the, the goal is to get him back for the playoffs, the playoffs, the playoffs, the playoffs. And even heading right down to the very end of the regular season, it looked like that was a possibility because he was heading into Week 18 preparing to play. Later even than I had predicted, being ultra-conservative with his, with his rehab process. Still, he was going to be ready for the playoffs, at least we thought. Now, though, it's hard to be positive in any kind of way because, again, we've had basically two seasons, in effect, ruined by this injury And we're bordering now on a third season being affected. And we've used the the analogy of the doomsday clock here before, ticking closer and closer to midnight. And previously we've said midnight is Bakhtiari not being ready for week one. I think the doomsday scenario is now in play, and it's not that. It's the possibility that he never plays again. Here's why I think that's a possibility, because there's only so much you can do to fix your knee. And if we're, I'm going to say two years in now, even though we're four months away, four and a half months away from being two years in, functionally, we'll we'll just say two years in, how much more can you really do? If you're having setbacks, you have to face the real possibility that things are just never going to be the same again. So there's at least a chance, I think, that things are just never better for Bakhtiari. But on top of that, just as a human being, you have to wonder, how much can you really take? How much can you keep going through the rehab process before you just say, enough, I don't want to do this anymore? And maybe Bakhtiari is miles away from that point. Maybe he's close to that. He's the only one who knows. 
But just, just thinking as a human being, that has to come into play at some point, doesn't it? There's only so much you can do trying to get back to a job before you just say, that's it. I don't want to do it anymore. I'm done. I don't want to keep going through this process. And I think if Bakhtiari gets to that point, it's totally understandable. It's a real bummer for us as fans, for people who want to watch the Packers and hope they can be as good as they possibly can. But from a human perspective, I think that's understandable. And I I don't, I know there's a certain amount of people on the internet that are just saying that he's not rehabbing as hard as he possibly could. I think it's fair to assume that he is. I think based on everything that we've seen from him, based on what we've I've learned from him as a person just from 2013, 2012 to now. Why would you assume that he's not rehabbing as hard as he possibly can? Because if he can't play, if he gets cut or has to retire, it's going to cost him big financially. He's not going to see all of the money that was in that in that contract. On top of that, he just probably has pride in his work. And I think based on who he is as a person, who he's demonstrated himself to be over the time, the life of his time here in Green Bay, we can fairly safely assume that's the case. But the most driven person even has a, has the breaking point where they don't want to do it anymore. I mean, think about it for you. If the alternative to, you know, continually rehabbing an injury was just walking away, not having necessarily negative thoughts, things happen to you. I mean, we're not in a scenario where he has to keep rehabbing or he's not going to be able to walk again. He's just not going to be able to play professional football again. Where's the point for you? 21 months in, 20 months in, do you keep going through that process? I mean, if you're in your thirties as an athlete, like Bakhtiari is, do you, does it ever enter your thinking? Am I ever going to be as good as I was, even if I do come back? I mean, pride, human emotions are going to play a factor here. So what are the Packers' options moving forward? First, I think there's the waited out option, and this is the most likely scenario. You just wait it out. He needs to stay on the pub list as long as he can. Try to come back. Maybe that's a week from now. Maybe that's two weeks from now. Maybe it's into the regular season. But if he can get back at any point and be a starting caliber tackle in the NFL, you take that. You take that option. And I think even if you're among the fans who are extremely frustrated with Bakhtiari for whatever reason, for good reasons or bad, sit down and remind yourself that you saw what the Packers looked like in the playoffs in 2020 with bad options at tackle. You saw what the Packers looked like in the playoffs last year with newly returned from injury Billy Turner at left tackle playing out of position and Dennis Kelly at right tackle in the playoffs. You have seen what bad tackle play looks like and what it can cost the Packers. If Bakhtiari can play at a starting caliber level, you wait for that 100% of the time. If you have even a shot at a better option than what the Packers had in the playoffs last year, you take it. Because tackle play has ruined two playoff trips. Not by itself, but it's been a factor. So if he's got any sort of shot to get back this season at a starting caliber level, you take it. So the Packers are probably going to wait it out. In theory, option two is releasing him or trading him. And I just mentioned this because it is theoretically a possibility, but given the cap restrictions, it's not really even an option. It would just cause too much damage. 
The other option is that he retires. And I don't think it's 100% off the table. Like we've said, how much do you put up with if you're him? From the cap perspective, it appears to be roughly the same as a post-June 1 cut. Some dead cap this year, some dead cap next year. If he retires, he also exposes himself to the Packers trying to recover money from his signing bonuses and things like that. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. I don't know. That's at least an option. Retirement, I think, is at least on the table. The scenario where Bakhtiari doesn't play again for the Packers is on the table in a couple of different options there. But for now, I think the Packers have no choice but to wait. And while they wait, what are the Packers' options? Blue 58 listener Dave Braun writes this question, and we'll use this to frame our discussion. The Packers have to seriously consider that Bakhtiari's ACL tear and other damage was severe enough to be a career ender, just basing it on the significantly slower than expected recovery time and continued swelling and other issues. If so, who ends up on the tackle spots for Green Bay? Don't say Elton Jenkins, as he's likely not back before late in the season. And Dave is correct there. Obviously, Elton Jenkins would normally be the Packers' first option, except for Elton Jenkins also recovering from a torn ACL. So to recap previous discussions, my prediction was that David Bakhtiari would be ready for week one and starting at left tackle, which would push Yash Nyman over to the right side. It was based on statements from Matt LaFleur and David Bakhtiari. It seemed like things were heading in the right direction. Now let's assume, based on what we've seen now this week, that for the sake of argument, Bakhtiari is on the pup list to start the season. Yash Nyman seems like the obvious choice at left tackle. I've said that before. I've been wrong about it before, but it seems like that's what the Packers would probably want to do. He is functionally the incumbent on the left side, given that Billy Turner is no longer around and Elton Jenkins is not around for right now. The right side is trickier because you can't really separate right tackle from right guard. I think there are five options over on that side. You've got Royce Newman, Sean Ryan, Zach Tom, Rasheed Walker, and Cole Van Lannan. Let's rule out Rashid Walker right away. He's probably not it. He's probably going to need a little bit to acclimate, find his way in the NFL. Royce Newman was a college tackle, has among the longest limbs of the remaining options, got good length, longer arms for sure than Sean Ryan. And I think of the four remaining guys here, I'd probably give him first crack, though Cole Van Lannan also has something to say in this conversation too. Van Lannan, as well as a college tackle, Pretty close to identical to Newman physically. I put Van Lannan, or I put, yeah, put Van Lannan behind Newman there in terms of options just because getting him to be the starting right tackle seems like a big jump compared to what was asked of him last year. But with a year, you know, kicking around the training or the practice squad, the active roster, who knows? He worked with the starters in minicamp at right tackle for whatever that's worth. He also flip flop at guard and tackle with Royce Newman. So we'll see. Other options. Sean Ryan, one of this year's draft picks, seems like a guard to me. He's got shorter arms than Newman by a little more than an inch. He's also significantly heavier. That would fit with the Packers' tendency of going a little bit bulkier on the interior of late. That's kind of where they've been trending. So I think Ryan probably starts at guard. Maybe they give him a look at tackle, but I think they're going to sort out tackle elsewhere. Zach Tom is kind of the wild card here because I would put him in that kind of on-deck position. We're waiting to see what he is, where the Packers are going to want him to be. To me, he looks like a pure inside prospect, though he played some tackle in college. 
I think you probably let him be your interior offensive line super sub. He's probably your next man up at left guard, center, and right guard. Just have him focus on that. Don't give him too much. Let him focus on the interior offensive line as he makes this transition to the NFL. Predicting right now, I would say, assuming Bakhtiari is out, my week one starting offensive line is Yash Nyman at left tackle, John Runyon at left guard, Josh Myers at center, Sean Ryan at right guard, and Royce Newman at right tackle. How do we feel about that? I don't love it. You've got essentially your third string left tackle, your third your third option, if you're going preferred options. Nyman is no better than third behind Bakhtiari and Jenkins. You've got options sort of one and definitely one at left guard and center. Run in versus Jenkins at left guard. It kind of is a toss-up considering what else they might want to do with Jenkins if he was healthy. I think they'd probably have him at right tackle, but that's a different discussion. Sean Ryan at right guard, I mean, I don't feel terrible about it. He seems like he has the physical tools to do it. It's just throwing another rookie in at right guard. Well, we tried that last year. How'd that work out? Not super great for a lot of the season. And then Royce Newman at right tackle. I don't love that either, but I don't necessarily love Van Lannan more. So there's a lot to not really like here. And any way you spin it, this is putting the Packers in a bad spot. Let's talk about some more positive stuff or at least some stuff that doesn't have an obvious downside. Packers have made a couple player moves here, uh, signing three guys on the eve of training camp. As of this recording, we do not have the um, corresponding moves for these ones, Uh, but that's something we can work out another day. Uh, The Packers have signed three guys, Dallin Levitt, a safety, Osiris Mitchell, or Osiris Mitchell, depending how you want to pronounce your Egyptian gods, Uh, at wide receiver, and Ty Clary, an offensive line prospect. Let's go in order there. Dallin Levitt, a 5'10", 195-pound safety out of Utah State, an undrafted free agent in 2018. He signed with the Raiders and has played there for the last four years, appearing in all of the games in 2021, in 16 games in 2021. I think he might have missed a game, actually. Still adjusting to that 17-game schedule. Doesn't really matter. He played a lot for the Raiders in 2021. And let's recall for a second who else we know from the Raiders from last year, or really the last few years. Think, think, think. Rich Bisaccia, of course. And what did Rich Bisaccia do in Oakland slash Las Vegas? Well, of course, he coordinated special teams. And who led the Raiders in special team snaps in 2021? Well, it was Dallin Levitt. 348 special team snaps for Mr. Levitt. The most for the Raiders by far. The next closest guy had 260. Levitt also played 249 snaps on defense. Seems like a nice little low-end roster signing here just before training camp gets started. Bisaccia knows what he can do on special teams, and if he can add anything on defense, I think that's a win. Expectations probably pretty low. I think that's the good default position for guys signed right before camp. There are lots of opportunities at safety, though, and I predict that he is going to make the roster as a special teamer. Seems like a natural fit there. Rather than one of these guys that you wonder what kind of special teams impact they can have in, you know, in addition to what they do on defense, let's just go with a guy that we know can do it on special teams and has done it a lot in Levin. What about Mr. Mitchell? Well, he's a tall wide receiver, if nothing else, six foot five, two hundred and six pounds. That six foot five comes with a bit of an asterisk at his Mississippi State Pro Day. He measured six foot three and a half. It's 
been known to happen. Undrafted in 2021, but spent most of the season last year on Dallas's practice squad, he played in the USFL this spring, catching 23 passes for the Birmingham Stallions. Expectations got to be pretty low here, too. I like him better, in theory, than a guy like Danny Davis. It seems like having a guy who has some actual utility as a receiver, that's probably a good move. Um, so I, I would rather have him than Davis, who I, I still don't understand as a prospect. I would predict that Mitchell isn't going to make the roster or the practice squad at this point. It just seems like the Packers have better options elsewhere. But Mitchell is at least in line a little bit more with interesting guys they've had in camp in the past, at least has some physical tools. He's bigger than Davis. He's produced recently in something resembling a high level of football in the USFL, though how high that level of football is is going to vary depending on your interpretation of the USFL. But I think he's at least some guy worth having around. He's at least got one defining attribute where you say, at least he's tall. And uh, you can you can build off of that. Finally, Ty Clary, six foot four, three hundred and fifteen pound interior offensive line prospect out of Arkansas. He went undrafted this spring. He initially signed with the Dolphins, but was released. His agent says that he was recovering from shoulder surgery, wasn't quite ready yet when the Dolphins signed him. He started at both guard and center for Arkansas. Saw both both guard spots. In fact, uh, he started both at left and right guard. He's in my no expectation group on the um, on the offensive line, but hey, uh, anybody can be good. And uh, having that versatility between guard and center, maybe you look at it as a little bit more um, competition for a guy like Jake Hansen. Low-end roster competition here. Final shout-out, or one of the final shout-outs here for our uh, – Blue 58 podcast scholarship voting before we get into some of the talk about our specialists on the Packers roster. Uh, head over to thepowersweep.com. Give that a vote. Voting ends Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. Um, we're very happy for all the people who have uh, submitted their pitches, and I'm interested to see who wins. going to be interesting here coming down to the wire with some voting. Um, just excited to see who wins this thing and excited to help somebody get their show off the ground. So head to thepowersweep.com and cast your vote today. Packers specialists, I don't have a ton of substantive takes on either the individual specialists or the special teams group as a whole, because I think we're kind of in wait-and-see mode. What is Rich Bisaccia going to do? Give us until week four or five, and we can say, all right, we're at least headed in a direction here, because it's tough to really forecast how things are going to shake out if you, well, if you don't get to see anything. And it's really hard to project special teams because you don't even know who's going to be on the units. But I think it is safe to say that the special teams units have Bisaccia's fingerprints all over them already. We're seeing a lot of guys he has previous relationships with pop up in Green Bay. Uh, Mr. Levitt, we've talked about already today. There's also Keyshawn Nixon. Pat O'Donnell, though he played in Chicago, uh, was heavily recruited the last time he had an opportunity to um, sign a free agent deal by Rich Bisaccia and decided to stick with Chicago. But Bisaccia likes him, and now he's got him in Green Bay. It's clear that Bisaccia is making the calls here, and I'm excited to see what the Packers can do on special teams with a guy who's making those kinds of calls with that kind of legacy of success at the helm. It at least seems like the Packers are pointed in a direction. There is more... It seems to be, at least, that there is more plan than hope now on the Packers' special teams. 
last couple of years, it seems like, well, we'll we'll add another coach and we'll we'll see what happens here. Now it seems like they've got a guy who's got a plan, who has had success before, and he's trying to put that plan in place. So let's see what he can do. Quickly looking at our specialists here. Mason Crosby starts things off as the Packers kicker. Bit of a rough 2021, though much of it was not his fault. He can't block for himself on field goals and PATs. The last we really saw of him, though, he was getting a field goal blocked in the divisional round of the playoffs because Tyler Lancaster was out on the field for some inexplicable reason in a playoff game and was later replaced in that game, but that's the kind of enduring image of that divisional round game as far as Mason Crosby goes. I think your expectations, though, have to be high for Crosby heading into 2022. The Packers have stuck with him at every turn. They have brought in guys that are at least in theory, kicking against him, but it's clear they still expect him to produce. They've not taken the opportunity to save cap space by releasing him or trying something else. They've just stuck with him and hoped or believed that he is going to get better. And he can meet, I think, those expectations by just being more consistent than he was in 2021. Now, consistency is a a bit of a tricky expectation for kickers because field goal accuracy tends to be a little bit fickle from year to year. And I think as we've seen in 2021, there are a lot of factors that can affect a kicker's bottom line accuracy, or at least results that are out of his control. But he also needs to be better. There are kicks that he missed that were not anybody's fault but his last year. And hopefully he stabilizes things out a little bit in 2022. As far as predictions, I predict that he is going to have a bounce back year in terms of accuracy. I think some some consistency from Pat O'Donnell is going to help him a lot. I predict that he is going to break 83% on field goal success rate again this year. If he attempts 30 field goals, that would mean he would need to make 25 to be above 83%. I think he can do it. I also predict that his hang time on kickoffs will again drop. This was something that we saw from Crosby last year a little bit and the previous year. He's having a little bit of trouble getting the ball to the end zone on kickoff attempts, and he's had to resort more to line drive kickoffs to get it there. If you're shooting for touchbacks, that's not a bad way to go about it. It's just something to monitor as his leg strength changes a little bit with age. According to Pro Football Focus, his hang time on kickoffs has gone down each of the last two years, and that is often a sign of declining leg strength, so a trend that bears watching again in 2022. Also on the roster is kicker Gabe Burkich. He was, at least according to some metrics, one of the best kicking prospects in last year's draft. He's bounced around the NFL a little bit. Barring something wild happening, or at least unexpected happening, he's not going to be on the 53-man roster. So I don't really have expectations for him, though. I would predict that he will end up on the practice squad, though, this year, because that's been the Packers' trend over the past couple of seasons. They have um, kept a kicker around either to take practice load off of um, off of Crosby or just to have a developmental prospect in the building. Burkish seems like a, a pretty good developmental prospect if that's the, the route of interpretation you want to go. I don't really know. But um, he, he does seem to have some worthwhile skills to have around. So we'll see what happens. At punter, Pat O'Donnell arrives in Green Bay after eight seasons with the Chicago Bears, and he was quite consistent there. He has a career punting average of 45.1 yards. Seven of his eight seasons to date are within a yard and a half of that mark, plus or minus. He also has some kickoff experience, though not a ton. Given what's going on with Mason Crosby, you may wonder if um, that is that is at least a possibility. 
expectations, I think, are, are pretty high for O'Donnell. The Packers have been churning their punters the last couple of years. They're looking for consistency. They've tried two guys whose calling card is having a big leg. Didn't really work. J.K. Scott and Corey Bohorquez, uh, you know, had some big kicks, but consistency was an issue. They need O'Donnell to be consistent. And he can really meet those expectations by just being the punter that he has been. If he keeps hitting those 45-yard punts consistently again and again and again, being accurate enough, that's good enough. Just do that and be a solid holder, and I think we've got a good season out of Pat O'Donnell. And I would predict that O'Donnell is going to meet or exceed his career punting average in 2022. 45.1 is the number to beat. I think he meets or exceeds that this year. Moving on to long snappers, we've got Stephen Wardle, uh, the incumbent in Green Bay. He was a midseason replacement last year for Hunter Bradley. I don't think there's any reason to say he was really better or worse than Bradley. Well, there's some significant downsides to Bradley, or to not to Bradley, to, to Wardle, but um, would Hunter Bradley have fared much better in those positions? You don't really know. Expectations, I think, are pretty low for Wardle. How can they be anything other than that for a long snapper? Uh, but he was, to be fair, one of the guys responsible for the loss in the playoffs, he got blown up on, on that block punt. Maybe that's not fair. Well, that's too bad. Football isn't fair. He can meet expectations this year by holding off Jack Coco. Be the guy. Be consistent. Just get it done. And uh, the job is yours. I don't think he makes it, though. I think Coco pulls the upset and uh, ends up as the Packers' long snapper this year. And maybe that's just me hoping for a guy with a cool name to make the roster. But, you know, we'll see. And what about Mr. Coco? the new long snapper in town for the Green Bay Packers. Well, he's a good athlete, if nothing else. Is he going to be a good long snapper? Who knows? He played on the offensive line and at tight end in college, which is an interesting profile. Uh, Was not necessarily a full-time snapper, at least not all the time. And until he arrived in Green Bay, he had not snapped for a punt since high school. Colleges often split duties between a deep snapper for punts and a short snapper for uh, field goals and PATs, he was the short snapper in college. Can he convert that to NFL success? I don't know. But I, I'm predicting that he, he at least gets another shot because he's probably a better athlete than, than Wordle, and uh, he doesn't necessarily have to be all that much better to be a better better snapper. Even if I liked Coco and Wordle a lot as prospects, I really couldn't go higher than low as far as expectations. The expectations for any long snapper are I think more than any other position on the roster, just do not screw this up for us. Don't be the problem. And far too often over the past couple of years in Green Bay, the long snapper has been a problem. So at least this year for both Wordle and Coco, just do not screw this up for us. As far as the returners go, two predictions here. I don't want to go in-depth on the guys that I think have a shot, Amari Rodgers, Romeo Dubs, and Christian Watson, I think all are worth a look. I would predict that the Packers start the season with Amari Rodgers as the primary punt returner. Romeo Dubs, though, will return both a kickoff and a punt for the Packers in 2022. Those are my two returner-related predictions this year. Let's finish off by talking about the last chapter of the games that changed the game. Interesting that um, in terms of the history around the game, Jaworski does not go super deep on Bill Belichick. Some of the schematic stuff, the schematic developments um, that you talk about with some of the other coaches mentioned in this book, you know, Bill Walsh, Sid Gilman, 
uh, Buddy Ryan, stuff like that, got lengthy explanations as far as where they fit in football history. Bill Belichick doesn't get that same treatment. And I wonder if that's kind of his legacy as a coach. I have a vivid memory of uh, reflecting on his legacy as a coach. In July 2019, I was sitting in a room in a hospital waiting to be called back to meet my son for the first time. And as I was waiting nervously in that room, um, I needed something to do. So I started reading the book, Collision Low Crossers, detailing the the New York Jets season that ultimately, uh, well, it fell short in the playoffs, but that's a a good good book to read if you were a Packers fan who was trying to cover Mike Pettin because it talks about him and his time with the, the New York Jets. And they talked about how, in that book, how Bill Belichick was such a hard guy to solve as a coach because you, you he didn't have any tendencies. He didn't have like this one scheme that he had innovated and um, really developed over his time as the Patriots head coach. The thing that the Jets talked about being difficult as far as playing against Belichick is he was always doing something different. And I think that might be Belichick's legacy as a coach. And that's a tough legacy to really have, other than the winning, of course. Um, that's that's a heck of a legacy to have. Um, it's tough to point to something Bill Belichick has done and say, like, this. This is where he innovated. This was the thing that he's going to carry into the future. The thing that keeps coming up when you talk about Belichick, though, is, is preparation, details, uh, not taking any play for granted. That is a small thing, but it's a crucially important thing. And I wonder if that sort of thing in the grand scheme is more importantly that more important than being a great schematic mind, because Belichick has coached in an era where there's been a, a whole ton of big schematic minds moving in and out of the NFL. You talk about Sean McVay, uh, Kyle Shanahan, everybody on the Shanahan tree, really uh, different movers and shakers throughout the NFL who come and go. I mean, look at all the people that have been on the the, the Belichick tree that have come and gone, uh, that have been hot names and then just disappeared. Eric Mangini, Josh McDaniels, though, Joe, though getting another shot with the Raiders now. Um, all of these people that have supposedly been geniuses that have the, these systems and ideas that they're going to take elsewhere throughout the NFL just kind of fall apart when they're away from Belichick because his preparation, his details, his small things are making the difference there. His ability to respond on a game-by-game basis Uh, to opponents, really takes things to another level. And that's why this chapter, I think, was interesting to me, because if Bill Belichick's legacy isn't big schematic innovations, it leaves you with those details and trying to take things game by game instead of season by season. And maybe just trying to win one game at a time is the ultimate lesson that Belichick leaves for coaches at any level. I think about stuff like that a lot, winning just one game at a time when, or I've thought about it a lot when it, when it's come to these books or this book in particular and, and looking at books that take a look at big individual games uh, and try to draw conclusions from them. A lot of Super Bowls, uh, maybe I'm just thinking about, you know, games the Packers have played in, uh, but, you know, Super Bowl 32, for instance, you play that game again, you play it 50 times and the Packers probably win most of them. If they get a chance to play the Broncos again the week after they lost to them in the Super Bowl, I think it's a rout. I think they destroy the Broncos. But you don't get to play a series in the NFL. 
you just get to play one game at a time. So it's not necessarily always the better team that wins. And I think in this Super Bowl that we're talking about in this chapter, it wasn't necessarily the better team that won. It was the team that was better that day. And that's all that really matters. And to circle back to the Belichick talk, maybe getting your team better that day is his ultimate legacy. A few smaller notes from this chapter. Mike Martz is clearly a very, very smart coach. And I wonder, I don't wonder, I know that you can be too smart for your own good. I've looked, courtesy of the great website, footballxos.com. Take a look at that sometime if you haven't. I've looked at his playbook from his time with the Detroit Lions and some other stuff from other stops he's made around the NFL. Even by NFL standards, Mike Martz's playbook is immense. It is huge, detailed, planning, concepts. It's a treasure trove of information. He's clearly a great offensive mind. He has thought of things that you wouldn't think to think about. But I think there is such thing as being a useless genius. What good is being smarter than everybody if nobody else can understand you? Or what good is being a genius if the thing that you're a genius for designing doesn't work in the scenario you're in? That's where the Rams found themselves in the Super Bowl, and Bill Belichick was more than happy to take advantage of that because Martz refused to change. In the game itself, you had this nugget from Jaworski where Ricky Prohl goes to Mike Martz and says, hey, they're putting seven, eight defensive backs out on the field. Why don't we run the ball more often? And according to Jaworski and Prohl, Martz just says, I'm going to try to win the game my way. And I think it's fair to say that you need some kind of arrogance to get to the NFL. You have to believe that you're smart and capable and can do all these things. But long-term, you also need humility to succeed. Because as smart as you can be, you're not going to be right all of the time. And a failure to adapt is a failure to assess your own ability to be right all the time. However, we have to give some credit to Mike Martz as an innovator because in the 90s, working uh, with Norv Turner, he comes up with the revolutionary idea of running the plays we like all the time instead of just on third down. Talking to Turner, he says, you know, we've got this great third down package. All these plays work. Why don't we just run those plays? Well, duh. Yeah, obviously, that's something you should do. But sometimes the obvious answers are so obvious that you don't even think to use them. And that's been a recurring theme in this book. Doing things a little bit unconventionally can sometimes have a big effect. I thought it was interesting that Bill Belichick says he wanted to draft consistent hitters, double, single and double hitters versus trying to draft Hall of Famers. I wonder if that's missing the trees for the forest a little bit. Because sometimes what you want is just a really neat tree. Individual trees can be good too. And I think that might explain Bill Belichick's problems in the draft a little bit. He's looking for just those lower-level consistent guys instead of taking a swing on guys that might have a higher ceiling. Because the floor tends to be a little bit higher on those high-ceiling guys too. Swing big, miss big, right? Plus, I wonder if this is even true. I think I'm more inclined to believe that the Patriots won that Super Bowl, this one that we're talking about in particular, Super Bowl 36, because they had different maker, difference makers at key positions, Tom Brady, you know, Richard Seymour, Willie McGinnis, so on and so forth, that those difference makers at key positions and then surrounded those guys with the guys that could do their job, those singles and doubles hitters. Then they built a great strategy on top of that. 
So they had contributors at, at key positions. Then they surrounded those guys with guys that are other good players, veteran contributors. Then they built their strategy on top of that. Well, you're going to win a lot of games doing that, I think. The perfect thing to end on from this book and this chapter in particular is Richard Seymour's touchdown saving sack. So Torrey Holt gets loose because the Rams have the right call on. Bill Belichick makes the call for defense. The, uh, the Rams have the perfect counter. Torrey Holt is running open through the secondary. And what happens? Well, Kurt Warner doesn't get the ball off because Richard Seymour busts through the line and sacks Warner. No touchdown. Game is probably saved for the Patriots. And Jaworski writes, quote, What he did had nothing to do with any Belichick scheme, but had everything to do with a young athlete beating a more experienced blocker to make a terrific play, end quote. Schemes are great. Players are better. Packers connections in this chapter, two of them. Who did Richard Seymour beat on that sack? Adam Timmerman, a stalwart on the Packers' offensive line during some of their great teams in the mid-'90s, including their 1996 Super Bowl championship team. You also get Fritz Schirmer name-dropped in this game, an early contemporary of Bill Belichick when he was first coming into this league. As we leave this book behind us, I wanted to take a couple quick looks at some of the predictions that Jaworski made. He predicted that spread offenses and spread quarterbacks by extension were going to become more popular in the NFL over the decades since this book was written. Generally, that is true, though I don't think we've seen quarterbacks quite changing the way that he predicted. We don't really have platoon systems for quarterbacks. We don't really have a ton of the super mobile spread offense sort of guys in the NFL. Generally, I think there's a broader pool of quarterback prospects than before, though, because we've opened things up more to smaller quarterbacks. Russell Wilson, Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, those sorts of guys are getting drafted higher than they ever were before. Sometimes they wouldn't have been drafted at all or getting, gotten the opportunity to play quarterback at all. I think the, the thinking has changed on who can play quarterback than more the approach to how quarterbacks are used. He said that teams that run out of pass formations will be the most explosive on offense. I think that's proven to be very true, though maybe not in the in the way that he fully anticipated. Run offenses that start out looking like runs have really proven to be successful in the NFL, and we've seen seen that with the Packers and a number of other Shanahan tree offenses. He said that we could soon be seeing 400-pound linemen. Not quite, but we're also not getting any smaller either. He predicted that we'd see a rise in creative pressure packages using big linebackers or small linemen, uh, guys that are in that 230 to 240-pound range. I think that's true. Edge rushers have trended that direction. The Packers are just drafted Quay Walker, who's going to be that kind of blitzer uh, for them. You know, is he just really functionally a giant safety or a small linebacker or maybe just a super, super small uh, you know, edge or defensive lineman? It's not really clear, but he's going to create some havoc for opposing offenses. One prediction that he really nailed was that nickel cornerback was going to become a premium position in the NFL. That is 100% true. And I, I think NFL uh, defenses approach things, you know, with nickel as a base now more than they ever have before. And that would have been revolutionary thinking during a lot of the, the games that, that Jaworski was writing about. Finally, he predicted that the NFL will go to an 18-game schedule. Almost got there with 17, but hidden within that prediction was uh, a prediction on a corresponding increase in roster sizes. And that worked. Practice squads are bigger now than they ever were before. And I think that has helped the um, the strength of um, the the game as a whole. That's been a good development for, for the NFL. 
That's all for the games that changed the game. That is all for our off-season content because training camp starts as this podcast comes out. And that's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. When we speak again, training camp will be underway in Green Bay, and I'm excited to take you through another season. Um, Just trying to do the best we can to have smart conversations about the Green Bay Packers. If you enjoyed this show and you enjoy Blue 58, I would appreciate it if you would share this episode that's going to help more people find the show and help us continue to grow and continue to have good conversations around the Green Bay Packers because that's going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.